Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. As we dig into the scriptures today, I want to look at some things that I think are going to help us out because today is Communion Sunday. And anyone here today, first time or not, you can participate in communion today, the elements of bread and wine. It's a beautiful time where we can remember Jesus. How many know that communion is not about remembering yourself and all your shortcomings and how you fell and what you did wrong? It's all about remembering Jesus, amen? But I want to look into some things today concerning communion because we haven't really taught on this for about a year. And I just, you know, how many know this, that as we, as we grow we mature, we learn new things, and we come to new revelation about who God is and who we are and what that means for the world. Amen? How many could agree with that? And often I hear people, I've heard people say, yeah, I think, I think I'm good. Let me say this, I'm never good as far as my revelation and my growth in God. I think we should always be progressing because he's always, he's always working to what? Renew our minds. Romans 12, 2 says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we become transformed? A different person, transfigured, like when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the same deal. How do we get transformed? By the renewing of our mind. How many of the Holy Spirit is in the renewing mind business? Amen? But I want to turn this morning to Leviticus chapter 1. Say Leviticus. You're like, whoa, you're going way back. That's like the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Say with me again, Leviticus. Say it like that, Leviticus. We don't often read Leviticus, but we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 1 today. The reason I want to do this is I want to set up some history as to why we receive the communion elements. It's really cool, but what it's going to do today, I think, is transform you in your mind to this point where you realize, wow, first of all, everyone's welcome at the table. And secondly, this means a little more to me today than it did yesterday or the day before, last month when we received communion elements. So in Leviticus chapter 1, there were five major offerings or sacrifices. And so Israel had, in, in the wilderness, they built a tabernacle, and they would have these sacrifices. There were five major sacrifices or offerings. There was the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And they all had very specific details on what they were supposed to do. Now, what I want us to see here today is what this sacrificial system meant and how Jesus, later in this time, just before his death and resurrection, he actually reversed the sacrificial system. And that's what communion is all about. But let's look in Leviticus chapter 1, starting with verse 1. It says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering of the Lord, some translations say, If any one of you, It says, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. Verse three, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. Now catch this. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now we're gonna delve into this a little bit more today, but if we had a title today to our talk, it would be this, the great sacrifice reversal. Say that with me, the great sacrifice reversal. I want us to catch hold of what it means when we receive communion together. This is a sacrifice reversal. You ready to go on the journey with me today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just commit this time to you. I pray that our hearts are open, our minds are open to receive. What is it that you would speak to us today? Let this be your words. I pray that mind change would happen that repentance, that's changing our mind, would happen today. And as we walk out of here, receiving those communion elements, we'd walk in a freedom that we've never sensed before. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. As I was going through this process, I was thinking about this. If your kids ever ask you something, if they could do something or have something, and your initial reaction was no. Anyone, if you have kids, you're like, yeah, every day I'm saying no. I heard one guy say it's good to say two yeses to every no. And I've really been working on it because I I can say no. I'm like the king of no, right? But has your your child ever asked you something, to do something, want something, and the initial response is no? I was thinking about this just this weekend. Uh, Ethan had a friend over. And we had dinner, and they they had these plans that they were going to ride up to the local ice cream place on their bikes and grab an ice cream. 
So they're, they're out in the living room and Chris and I were finishing up dinner in the, in the uh, dining room area. And uh, we looked at the time and I said, hey boys, you better get going because it's getting kind of late. I don't know what time the ice cream place closes. And our son Ethan says, well, you know what, dad, could we just run up to the gas station instead? I'm like, the gas station, why? He's like, so we could get snacks. I'm like, well, no, you can't get snacks, but you can get ice cream. Now, as I say this, I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't really make sense. But here is my thought process. They'll go up and get a bunch of processed food versus some natural ice cream. I don't know. So my wife looks at me. She's like, it probably doesn't really matter. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And he said, okay, go ahead, bud. We actually changed. Like he asked a question. The initial response was no, but then we changed to a yes. Sometimes we say yes in order to continue relationship building with our kids. Now I'm going somewhere. Here's another question. Have your kids ever said, you're mean? You don't love me. And after a firm beating, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, they say, you're mean. You don't love me. Well, what's the truth? You do love them. And so let me ask you a question. When they say things like that, do you immediately cut them out of the family, kick them to the curb, say, I know you're seven, but you better go get a place to live and find a job because I'm done? No. Even though they respond that way, you know, sometimes we let our kids believe what they want to about us to continue relationship building. I'm okay with my son thinking, you're mean. Why? Because you didn't let me have this or that or go do this or that. Because the truth is I love them. Because I love them, even if they want to believe something that isn't true about me, that's okay. Not kicking them out of the family, not kicking them to the curb. I say, you know what, baby? I love you. I do. And I know how you feel right now. But you know what? I just want your heart. I want relationship with you. And I know what's best for you. So I will continue to discipline and love and train you for your future. But I still love you. How about this? Have you ever had a child as they grow older? This is a big one. This might touch close to home. Start to make decisions that aren't the best for their life. I think all of us have probably experienced this in one way or another. Maybe even with, maybe you have the perfect kids, but your brother or sister, their kids, nieces and nephews didn't make the best decisions, right? But when they do this, what do we do? How do we respond? I mean, maybe they moved out of the house and they're making bad choices. And, and as a loving parent, you definitely tell them the truth and you try to show them a better way to do life. But sometimes they just don't want to hear it. Do you cut them off of all relationship? Do you say, I'm done with you? Absolutely not. That's not what good parents do. That's not what loving parents do. But here's what I've found in life. Because all of our kids, at certain extremes and certain seasons, have dealt with these things. Being overbearing and trying to force my ways into their life, it actually drives them away. And I've had to learn to say, okay, you are where you are right now. And I'm going to have to pray and I'm going to have to watch from a distance. Because I, I love you, and I, I, I know what's better for you, but if I just preach at you stuff most kids already know, I'm going to drive you away. So what does love do? Never cuts them out of the family. Never cuts off relationship. You simply back off and you love. Now, I'm going somewhere with this today, and I'm probably going to mess with some heads today a little bit because of maybe the mentality we've had about the sacrificial system and what it meant to Israel and to the world. But I want you to stick with me. Will you stick with me this morning? So as parents, sometimes it may not be the best decision in our minds, those things that they're doing, but we look at this relationship as long-term. Say that with me, long-term. We're in a long-term relationship. So is God. And it's this chance to slowly bring them from one level of maturity to the next. Does this make sense? And so I believe that God acted in the same manner to Israel, and I believe he acts in the same manner today with us. See, sometimes God will let you believe what you need to believe in order to maintain relationship with you. Now, Bishop Jamie Englehart maybe coined this phrase. When I first heard that, I was like, it blew my mind. God will let you believe what you need to believe in order to maintain relationship with you. Why? Because eventually he knows that as that relationship grows in his love and his grace and his goodness, you will grow to the next level of maturity. Okay. Do you follow me? Now, as believers, it's tough because we're like, where's the fruit? Uh, you ain't acting right. Yeah, well, you ain't either in your judgmental attitude. 
So maybe sometimes we need to step back and stop judging people and go, wow, Heavenly Father, I'm going to love those people, but what is it in my life that you're trying to show me so I can go to the next level? It's so easy to look down your nose at someone else and feel good about yourself, but that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is I'm not looking down my nose at anybody. I'm going to accept my brothers and sisters, and if they're struggling, I'll be there for them. I'll pray, I'll pray for them. Sometimes you've got to love them from afar. Stop preaching at everybody all the time. Sometimes they've heard enough. they got word for years. But they need to hear a word from the Holy Spirit that says, I love you, and you were built for better than this. So sometimes God will allow us to believe even things that aren't necessarily true about him just to maintain relationship with him. I like to say like this, he sometimes goes along with even a wrong idea in order to maintain relationship and thus cause us to grow in revelation. How many would say this, that you believe something different about God today than you did five years ago? Yeah, that's good. That means you're growing, right? I know for me, it's been a whirlwind of stuff. Even what I'm, what I'm showing today, I think for some of us is going to go, whoa, I never saw it like that before. How many see yourselves and even your life decisions and even others differently than you did, say, three years ago? See, this is maturity. This is how we grow. This is the journey that we're on. And this is how God works. Listen to this. God is even willing for people to believe and even write down their current beliefs of how they see him, even if they're dead wrong about him. Come on, somebody. Part of the reason that Jesus came was to show us who the Father really was. Now, we're not challenging Scripture. What I'm saying, though, is some people would write things down according to their revelation of God. Do you know in the early Old Testament, they believed that good and evil came from God? Now, today, would you say evil came from the Lord? No. Why? We've grown in revelation. It was truth to them. But God knew he wasn't evil, but he allowed those things to be written so we could see the progress of man slowly learning to, to see who God really and truly was. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father does. And what did he do? He brought healing and love and restoration and grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness. Say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus was the exact representation of God in this earth. So when we look through the Old Testament, when we look through the sacrificial system, what lens should we look through? Jesus. Because when we do, we get it right. If we don't, sometimes we get it wrong, and sometimes we go way off and we get some jacked up doctrine and theology, and we think God's angry and retributive, and he's going to make you love your enemies, but man, his enemies, there's coming a time. That doesn't even make sense. You follow me? Now, I know for some of us, we're like, I want to tilt your heads a little bit today. Jesus did it all the time in parables. Parables were told to disorient us, to throw us off balance because it was nothing like the world system we were used to. He was trying to show us a different kingdom. So as we look into this today, I think that's going to happen. But I was thinking about this. If God is willing for us to even say things about him that are incorrect, I thought, man, is that the epitome of unconditional love? I mean, for most of us, if you're like me, if somebody's saying something wrong about me, my initial response is to cut that relationship off. Oh, fine. You want to say stuff that isn't true about me? Psh, I want nothing to do with you. But God, even when people with good intentions would write or say things that were contradictory to his character of love, he still stuck around. So that's just a good example for us. Sometimes we just have to stick around through thick and thin, even when people are saying bad things about us. Why? Because in the end, we see their destiny, we see their purpose, and we believe in that, and we love people. And unconditional love means that, unconditional, no strings attached. So that's how God has always dealt with humanity. So we see the sacrificial system here, but I want to visit Mount Sinai. 
not physically, but just in our minds for a moment. At Mount Sinai, there was a meeting. I heard one pastor, he said it was the first promise keepers meeting. It was when all the law was told and they said, everything you said, we shall do. And then they walked off and barely did any of it. It's amazing, right? That's a lot of times what happens with promise keepers. Where, and I'm not against promise keepers. I'm sure it was a great thing. I never went to one personally, but we make a bunch of promises to God. Then we walk away. Let me, let me tell you something. God made promises to you. You don't have to make promises to him. Just live in the promises, and all of a sudden, you'll change, you'll walk differently, and it's like, wow, this seems so easy. I know. So you don't have to make promises to God. He made promises to you, and the first promise is, I love you so much that I sent myself. I even allowed you to commit deicide, to kill God, but then I resurrected him because you are worth it, and I love you, and I desire a relationship with you. You are worthy. This is how God sees us. It's beautiful. But it's never changed. So here they are at Mount Sinai. And God, he's on this mountain and there's smoke and billows of cloud and there's lightning. And, you know, it's almost like a sci-fi movie. But, I mean, God was there. Now, what's beautiful to me is now God is here. That very power and source is here. We are the Holy of Holies. But here's God. And he says, tell the people to prepare themselves and come and meet me at the mountain. Now, this is huge. The God of the universe is saying to this people, come and meet me at the mountain. Why? I want relationship. I want covenant. And so he invites them to the mountain. It says that when they came to the mountain, they saw the smoke, the lightning, the fire, whatever uh, translation you read. And this is what they said to Moses. You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Over 10 generations, over 400 years of slavery mentality caused them to think that God couldn't have anything to do with them. In fact, their cultural minds, they came out of Egypt. If you're familiar with the Egyptians and the Persians and and all these different nations around them, they all had these gods who were to be feared. This is how how they work. This is how they process things. And so Israel saw what was going on instead of being in awe and reverence and saying, this is amazing. He's invited us to a relationship. They went, no, Moses, you deal with them. We want nothing to do with this. Slavery mentality did them in. And so here they are. They respond in this way. Why? Because they wanted a God like the other nation's gods. Now, if you, if you read through scripture, this is what was happening. They wanted, in fact, do you remember when they asked for a king? God said, you don't need a king. And the prophet said, let me give you a full list of what will happen if you get a king. And it wasn't a good list. And they said, cool, can we have a king? And what did God say? There we are again. Why? He wanted to maintain relationship. I'm telling you, folks, God loves us. He'll do anything he can to stay involved in our lives. Even when you believe lies about him, yourself, or others. Even when you live according to a system that's anti-kingdom, he'll say, you know what, it's okay right now. I have part of your heart, and I'm willing. So here's what happens. They wanted a God like all the other nations, one who is distant and needs appeasement. Now, you've got to understand history here. You know, Israel wasn't the only nation with a temple. They weren't the only nation with gods. They weren't the only nation with covenants. They weren't the only nation with arks that held covenants. I mean, this, this is typical. So what was happening is when you look at the process, if you just read it and go, oh, there's an ark and there's, oh, wow, this is cool. They did something completely different. No, they wanted to do things like every other nation. And God said, okay, we'll do it that way. That's okay. But as long as I can have a relationship with you, because eventually I'll grow you out of that place of needing these things, and you'll completely depend on our relationship together. Are you following me so far? They wanted a sacrificial system. Why? Every other nation did it. Now, I know some of your heads are like, wait, wait, I thought God, yeah, God established some things, but I want to show you something, the very beginning, that changed everything. They wanted a system in which sacrifices could be made to appease God and to appease their own conscience, and God said, okay. So here's how we're going to do it. This is what I love, because... God was different than any other God. So here's what happens. He says, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, fine, you want sacrifice system, that's fine, let's do it. But listen, when you bring an offering to the Lord, you bring your offering of the livestock. He says, you shall offer it with his own free will. He wanted this to be a free will thing. If you bring it, it should be of your free will, 
And this is how you do it. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. But look at this. The word bring in the Hebrew is the word karav. It means to draw near. Now, from the very first sentence in Leviticus, bring me an offering, he says, draw near to me. Now, you got to understand something. At this time, no other God said, draw near to me. Every other God was distant, angry. You never knew if you were good or bad. You would offer sacrifices. You would offer human sacrifices. You would offer grain sacrifices for bounty. One thing that God prohibited was human sacrifice. He says, never, ever will you offer a sacrifice of human. In fact, we learn this with Abraham. A lot of us, when you read the story, and you understand how, how it worked in Hebrew. When, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which by the way, I love the Jews, the rabbis call it the binding of Isaac because he wasn't sacrificed. He was simply bound, right? So in this time, every God required that your firstborn was sacrificed. It was normal. So, you know, I used to read and go, Abraham, I was like, oh, God. No, he said, okay. I guess he's just like all the other gods. But he had faith because he told his servants that me and the boy will return. If God has to raise him from the dead, I don't know. He had a faith in his God. But when he was about to plunge that knife through him, what happened? It says that his hand was stopped. Why? It was God's way to say, Abraham, I don't require human sacrifice. I am not like the other gods. In fact, I provide the sacrifice. And what was caught in the thicket? The ram. The ram. Isn't that beautiful? That long ago, thousands of years ago, God was trying to show us, listen, I provide the sacrifice. You don't have to. Amen. But Israel said, we need to be like all the other nations. But here he says, draw near to me. Every other God was distant. He was angry. You didn't know where you stood with them, so you offered sacrifice to appease them, and maybe they would be okay with you. You would offer your own children to them, to Baal and to Moloch and these other gods that weren't true gods. And what God was saying is, you can offer sacrifice, but it's different. Why? When you draw near to me, we will have relationship together. And you know what they would do? It's very specific. We're not going to go through every sacrifice, but it's very specific. When they would burn the animal on the altar, they would literally take that meat as a meal. God was saying, when you bring sacrifice, this is how I do things. We draw near. We come together. We eat a meal. We break covenant. I show you how much I love you and how much I care. I want to provide for you. I want to help your crops and your grain. I, 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 want, I want to take care of that sin issue that keeps you separated from me. It's not me separating from you, but in your mind. Hebrews tells us that those sacrifices made them feel better in their conscience. It wasn't God that needed appeasement. They need it for their conscience. Do you understand? And then the guilt offering. He doesn't want us to carry guilt and shame. And so this God was completely different. From the first sentence, this would be blowing the Hebrew minds that this God wants us to draw near? Are you kidding me? No, he wants you to draw near. He'll let you believe whatever you need to believe about him to keep relationship with you so you can grow to the next level and begin to understand his heart. And so that was God's purpose for allowing the sacrifice and the sacrificial system. So this was a, a God that was different than all the other gods of the time. He wanted you to draw near. He desired relationship. He wanted to show them a better way of being human and living out God's kingdom. But, say but, there's a big but here. Their hearts never changed. Look through the history. Their hearts never changed. As they grew in power, they became more like the world with a Yahweh sticker affixed to their tribe. So we're going to go to war in the name of the Lord. We're going to slaughter people in the name of the Lord. We're going to take people's land in the name of the Lord. I mean, they were ruthless. They were ungracious. They were unloving. They were violent. They were retributive. Now I get it. I get it. We go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Moses say that God wanted them to slaughter everybody? Well, if you look at the story, God said, I will drive the Canaanites out. So just sit back. I'll do it. Some pestilence. I won't let the ground, you know, bear fruit. They'll move out. We don't want to kill anybody. Moses went back. I got a message from God. What is it? He said, slaughter everybody. He's on our side. <laughs> what? 
I know I'm messing with minds, but here's the deal. Moses had an Egyptian worldview. What is the worldview, folks? It's anger. It's greed. It's retribution. It's war. What is the kingdom of God? It's peace. It's grace. It's love. It's restoration. Jesus even said to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to turn the other cheek. And for me, I'm telling you, there's times I'm like, I don't want to read that Bible verse because I like that movie Die Hard. We're getting them back. We're going to pay people back. But the thing is, has payback worked through all of history? Because when you pay someone back, guess what? I'm paying them back. Well, I'm paying them back. I'm going to pay them back. I'm going to pay them back. Listen, I'm not getting political. I'm getting kingdom-minded here, folks. And so they were just like the world, operating just like the world. They became so evil, they began to do the one thing, especially that God prohibited human sacrifices. They started to sacrifice their own children. And God said, you do evil in my sight. And we're thinking, oh man, yeah, what were they doing, Lord? Were they lying and cheating and stealing? No, they were slaughtering people, taking land. They were killing their own children. And God's like, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Do you know what God called Israel as? A holy people. You know what holy means? To be set apart or other. They were supposed to be a nation that didn't operate according to the world system of anger and greed and lust and war and retribution. They were supposed to be something other, something different. And the Bible tells us that all the nations would actually become jealous of their God. Why? Because when you really come down to it, so many people go through so much turmoil in life. Don't you think they want some relief from that? They want some rest from that? And so Israel was supposed to operate completely different, show how good their God was and that he was a true God. And nations were actually supposed to follow Israel into relationship with the Father. That was the point. Guess what? Didn't happen. Do you follow me so far? Isn't history cool? It sets us up for where we're going. And so here we are, they're, they're offering human sacrifices, uh, something the Lord prohibited. Now let me say this, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm not against the Jewish people, okay? Because we're like, man, Israel, they screwed up royally. Yeah, look at every nation since Israel, right? I mean, whose hands are clean from innocent blood? There's no nation, Right? So the point here is that God was trying to bring a nation, the nation of Israel out, to point them to a different way, the way that God operates, the way his kingdom looks, and to bring peace, grace, and restoration to this planet. People would follow in because they wanted something that was that good, but yet they went the way of the world. So I want to show you through the prophets God's response to this, okay? Because I know for some of us we're going, well, wait a minute, the sacrificial system, I mean, that was necessary, right? Well, let's read what God says about it. Amos chapter 5. The prophet Amos, look at this. Look what God says. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings, we read about that in Leviticus, right? And your grain offerings in Leviticus, right? I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings, another offering. God's saying, I want none of your sacrifice. I want none of your offering. What? Say what? I mean, come on. Verse 23, he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. God's like, I don't even want to hear your worship, folks. This is disgusting to me. You're acting just like the world, and you've completely missed the point. Sacrifice was to be a place to draw near to me, to see my heart towards you and humanity, and then to reciprocate, to bring that to outflow of peace and grace towards the world, and you never did. You became a big nation, and you did it through war and through murder. Isn't that crazy? But look at this, Isaiah. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11, he says, what do your many animal sacrifices mean to me? This is a question he's asking the people because they're coming with these sacrifices. He's like, what, what, what do you think they mean to me? Here's his answer. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and enough fat from your fattened calves. I'm not pleased with the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. What? When you read this, does it make you just tilt a little bit and go, he didn't, wait a minute, you don't, you're not pleased with the blood. I thought you wanted blood. Verse 12, when you appear in my presence, 
Who asked you to trample my courtyards? And he says, don't bring any more of your worthless green offerings. Your incense is disgusting to me. So are your new moon festivals, your days of worship, and the assemblies you call. I can't stand your evil assemblies. Now listen, do you think God just, he had enough? If he has nerves, this was the last one. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed festivals. They become a burden to me and I'm tired of putting up with them. So when you stretch out your hands in prayer, I will turn my eyes away from you. These are strong words. He didn't say he's turning away, so I'm turning my eyes away from you. Even though you offer many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. One translation says with innocent blood. What was God's big beef here? Israel was not acting according to the kingdom of God. They were just like the world, the world system. And they were just simply offering sacrifices, but living just like the world. They were called out to participate in a holy way of living. Holy means set apart or other. But they chose instead to live according to the world, their system of war, hatred, and retribution, and said, Yahweh is with us. Do you know how many times they went into exile, into slavery, into occupation? And you know what? If they would have followed God's way, that would have never happened. And God didn't even do it to them. The prophets warned, if you keep living this way, listen, if you tick people off, eventually they'll tick them off enough. They're going to come in and they're going to destroy you. Hello? Have we, have we watched the news lately and how this works? Even Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And Jesus didn't do it. He said, you keep operating according to this system with insurgency and trying to fight Rome, you're going down. And it was burnt to the ground. The temple, not one stone left up on the other. Jesus didn't do it. Our decisions cause these things. Do you follow me? So they never engage with God in such a way that their hearts begin to change and operate like God's heart for humanity. See, God's trying to do this with us. He's like, will you come away sometimes from, from that worldview and that world idea? Look at the kingdom. The kingdom is what? Righteousness, that's right relationship, peace and joy. It's grace, it's goodness, it's love. Will you choose to operate this way? I, I know it's completely different. I mean, Jesus was extremely subversive in, in his teaching. Jesus would come in and say things like, you've heard it said, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, and he says, but I say to you, and we read over that in the 21st century and go, oh, cool, Jesus is teaching something. No, he was changing the way they thought. He was jacking around with the scriptures, folks. He's like, listen, inspired word, men wrote it, but they didn't have a revelation who God was. This is what I say. And people were offended. How dare you mess with our holy scriptures, Jesus? Who do you think you are? And all he had to do was say, I am. You got some stuff wrong. But I'm here in flesh, God in flesh, because I love you. And I want to point you the right way. I'm so tired of seeing my children caught up in war and anger and retribution and slavery and bondage and lust. And all through the ministry of Jesus, what did he do? He healed. He brought restoration in wholeness and peace and love and grace. This isn't some mamby-pamby gospel. This is the truth. And when are we going to choose to live this way? Because when we do, it changes everything, and it starts right here in our hearts. And we start to see God differently. He's not angry. He loves me. We start to see ourselves differently. We forgive ourselves. We give grace to ourselves. And then what do we do? We turn our gaze outward, and we see others with purpose, with worth. And we start to treat people differently. It doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter the color of the skin. It doesn't matter their social status. We look at people as brothers and sisters, as offspring of God, the Apostle Paul said. In him, we live and move and have our being, and we start to realize we're all the same. But when will we wake up to the way of the kingdom? So what did they do? They ignored God's way of love. They ignored his way of peace and restoration and chose to offer sacrifices as they lived according to the world's ways. Now you're like, Pastor, how, what does this have to do with this whole idea of communion? 
Well, let's look at this in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. It says, while they were eating, now this is Jesus, they're eating. This is the last supper. How many have heard of the last supper? The last time Jesus will eat a meal with them before his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's this, this special time where they would do Passover every year. I, I would assume at this point, Jesus did at least three of these Passovers with the disciples. And so they're here, and this will be the last supper, and he's changing things around as the Messiah. Some of them I don't think really quite realized what was going on yet, but he changed everything around. So while they're eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. He broke the bread, gave it to them, and said, take this, this is my body. So we see Jesus, he's giving them this bread, he's saying it's his body. In verse 23, then he took a cup, spoke a prayer of thanksgiving, and gave them the cup. They all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood, the blood of the promise, or some versions say the new covenant. It is poured out for many people. Now I want us to see something here. The institution of the Eucharist or communion is a complete inversion of the temple sacrifices. Now we got to picture this. Here's Jesus, God in flesh, right? What happens is the usual direction of the sacrificial offering is reversed. He's reversing everything here. Instead of the worshiper giving to God, God is giving to the worshiper. I want us to catch this. This, this is absolutely beautiful. So Jesus, it says he gives his body and his blood. That word gives in the Greek, it means to give forth from oneself. Jesus is saying, I, God in flesh, I am giving to you the worshiper. Now the worshiper was used to giving to God. Now he's reversing. He's saying, I am giving myself to you. How does he do it? He symbolizes it by the bread and the wine. So instead of their giving their bodies and their blood, which we could say symbolizes money, because it took money to do sacrifice, right? Remember when Jesus turned over the, the, the tables and, and all those merchants because they were selling these sacrifices at these exorbitant prices? He was pretty irritated about that, right? Well, what would happen is a lot of people, you couldn't travel with your sacrifice, so you would come to the temple and you literally had to, you know, how many work every week? Blood, sweat, and tears, right? They would have to pay for the sacrifice. Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. No more will you pay for sacrifice. I am now going to give you myself. I will sacrifice myself. And in just a little bit of time, he'd be on a cross doing the exact thing, right? And so what is this? This is something to remember him by. But just as money symbolizes life given to the temple, so bread and wine symbolizes the divine life given to the worshiper. Are you catching this? One American biblical scholar suggests that the words of the institution, this is my body, this is my blood, I quote him here, he says, intend to present the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine as substitutes for the killing of victims in the temple. The room that they were in substitutes for the temple, the table for the altar, and the sharing of food for the killing of the victim. Normally, the worshiper brings the offering into sacred space, but here, the upper room is the non-sacred counterpart of the Holy of Holies. And so the offering is made outside of the sacred space. Thus, the sacrificial system, listen to this, is subverted by the reversal of the direction of its ritual logic. Now, there's a lot of words there, but I want us to hear what's going on here. Jesus is sitting at a table, and he's saying, instead of going to a temple, we can sit in a common room just like this for this sacrifice. And then he says, instead of an altar in a temple, it's simply a table with a meal. And then he says, instead of you providing the sacrifice, I now give myself to you. Jesus reversed everything. Think about this. God reversed everything. What parent here has never sacrificed for their child? You know, a lot of times... We say things like, hey, man, you really, you really need to serve the Lord. You need to serve the Lord. And I agree, we serve God as sons and daughters, not as slaves and servants, right? But how many parents could admit here that we actually serve our children? I, when your children want a sandwich, who makes a sandwich? Right? Even as they get older, uh, I need some gas money. Who gives them the gas money? What I'm saying is, as parents, we serve our children. That's just what we do. 
And I don't feel demeaned by that. I love serving my children. What can I do for you? We've got this ritual, because rituals aren't bad. It's just the motivation, right? We have this ritual every night. Aiden loves us. When he gets tucked in the bed, daddy has to come in and pray for him. And I have to scratch his back and I have to find the freezy spots. <laughs> you know what those are? You know when your back's being scratched, you're like, oh, right there. And you kind of get the shivers. He calls them freezy spots. I love it. And here's what's cool, though. He reciprocates. So I'll scratch his back and he'll go, oh, right there, dad, right there. I'm like, dude, you're seven. What? So I'm scratching his back. And then when I'm done, he'll go, just a minute, dad, turn around. I'm like, what? I know what he wants. But I'm like, what do you want? What do you what? Just turn around. He'll pull my shirt up and he'll go, oh, right there, right? Yeah. Now, I know exactly where those freezy spots are. And he'll hit the spot. I would go, oh, and I play it up a little bit. But it does feel good. I'm like, maybe my wife should do this sometimes. But I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it's this amazing relational thing. What I'm saying is it's great to serve God. But do you realize in this very moment, God was saying, I will serve you. I will give myself for you, my body and my blood, I give to you. I give it for myself. This is beautiful. He completely changed it around. He said, I'm done with the sacrificial system. Stop bringing sacrifices. I will be and provide the sacrifice. So the beautiful thing about this whole event is that Jesus doesn't simply tell his disciples what not to do. He gives them something to do. How many know we're creatures of habit? How many set their alarm every day for the same time? Why? Well, because you got to get up, go to work, so you can provide for your family, right? There's certain things that we do that are ritual. For some of us, we like to go to the gym at a certain time, on certain days. Why? So we can reap the benefits of working out. We all have ritual. It's, it's this human thing. And so Jesus was saying, as human beings, you're used to ritual. I get that. So here, let me give you something that you can do. And every time you do it, remember me. Remember the day that God gave to you. The day that I said, stop giving to me, I will give to you. Because even our giving to God is simply an outflow of his giving to us. We love because he first loved us. God always initiates, we simply respond. And this is how our life should look. This is what we need to embrace. We need to say, no longer do I have to sacrifice for God. Have you heard the messages? Are you sacrificing? Are you working hard? Are you doing things for God? You need to do better. Try harder. Be more. Do more. And what happens? We fail every time because we're trying to do it of our own self-effort. And Jesus at this table switches everything, reverses it, and says, listen, stop the sacrifice. I will be the sacrifice. I will give to you. You remember what I did for you in a good way. And then what's our response? We start to do the good works. We start to live righteously. We start to bask in his love, saturate in his love. And all of a sudden, it starts to be this outpouring. And all of a sudden, all the people around us start to get some of the love. Can we share the love? You've heard that term, right? That's a kingdom term, share the love. But it starts with God. He always initiates. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was extremely subversive in the institution of the communion meal. He was reversing everything. And you think about this idea. In the temple sacrificial system, they demanded victims. Now, God said, let's use animals. That's where we are right now because there won't be any humans, right? But there was a demand for victims, but not in this meal. This new ritual, this new way of living life, this new celebration, remembering Christ, it leads to new community that centers on a table, not an altar. It centers on bread and wine, not bodies and blood. It centers even on sharing this meal with one's enemies. Remember who was at the table with Jesus? Judas, the one who betrayed him. Do you know that Jesus even washed Judas' feet? You know that Judas even participated in this meal? Do you know that Judas didn't have to commit suicide? He could have been restored just like Peter who denied Jesus three times. Because Hebrews tells us this, even when we're faithless, he is faithful. Even when we mess up, we screw up, we do it wrong, we go the wrong way, he never leaves us, he never abandons us. He says, listen, I built you better than that. So stick with me, kid, and I'll show you the true way of living your life. It's beautiful. So don't give up on yourself. 
On your worst day, don't give up on yourself. Know that God's there. He's not leaving you, and he's always training you for a better future. Amen? This is how radical inclusion looks, baby. This is what the communion meal represents. So what do we see here? We see that God was giving himself to humanity in self-sacrificing, other-centered love. He was initiating this whole new way to live. So as we get ready to receive the elements today, I want to just talk about the bread and the cup for just a moment. First of all, we have the bread. In Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19, it says, At the Last Supper, Jesus handed out the bread, said it was his body, and told the disciples to eat it in remembrance of him. So what does it mean to eat the body of Jesus in remembrance? For some people, uh, one time I posted this, this Facebook post, Hey, we're having communion today. And someone got in there because I think they really love me a lot. And they made a comment like, Oh, cool. It's a bunch of cannibals getting together. Because they didn't get it, right? But what does it represent when we eat the body of Jesus through this bread? It means to behold Jesus, to put him first place, to focus on him and all that he has done for you through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Remember, folks, this isn't about remembering our shortfalls, our shortcomings. It's about remembering him when he reversed the whole system and said, now I am the sacrifice and I give myself to you. In communion, the bread represents his body, which was broken so that you might have life and health. And how many would say that's good news? Amen? So what is the cup? At the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and announced a new covenant base of his, on his blood. This is my blood poured out for you, he said, for the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus was doing. Now let me say you something. Many Christians treat communion time as a somber reflection of how bad they've been. That's not what it's for. Who did Jesus say to remember? Him. So whenever we receive communion, we remember him, not our bad day. Proclaiming the Lord's death and resurrection should be an occasion of great joy and celebration. It shouldn't be a somber time. We should be celebrating the goodness of God that he was willing to give himself for us. I mean, was there ever a better reason to throw a party? Amen. So this should be a joyful time, a time that we say, God, you are so, so good. So I'm going to have the ushers come forward right now. I was thinking about this, you know, why is this so good? Why is the cup so good? Well, think about this. Who we once were, it says we were defiled by sin. We've now been washed white as snow. It says that our guilty consciences have been cleansed and our forgiveness has been eternally secured by the precious blood of Jesus. They used to offer guilt offerings to feel better about themselves, but Jesus offered himself so we no longer have to have guilt or shame. Isn't that beautiful? Let's bow our heads for just a moment. You might be here today and you think, wow, this, this sounds like good news. But maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I just want to give us an opportunity right now. If you're here this morning and say, you know, I've never really heard this story this way before, and I never realized that God desired relationship with me that much that he was willing to give of himself. But I want to walk the way of Jesus. I want to see what this life is all about. It's real simple. It's simply saying yes to Jesus. If you're here this morning, you say, you know what? I believe that God loves me. I believe that he provided the sacrifice. I believe that his resurrection says something about my worth and the new way of living that I can now live in my life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just raise your hand and say, today's my day of salvation. I thank you, Father, for every person here who's made that decision, that we are followers of the way. We are followers of Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you'll never leave us. You'll never abandon us. You are here for us. And so we count on that today. And so as we receive these communion elements today, we choose to trust in you and to remember you in your finished work for us. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. I felt impressed to share this with us today. Again, this, this is a time of remembering what Jesus did, not what we've done. Amen? Because I would say this is good news in the bread and the cup. So if you're here this morning, you're still struggling with yourself, I, I want you to remember this. Judge yourself in light of Christ's perfect sacrifice. Because of his body and his blood, you are forgiven and you are healed. You know, Jesus' body was broken so we could be made whole, right? How many believe that Jesus is the healer? Sometimes it's physically, sometimes it's emotionally, whatever that may be. Maybe today you're battling sickness in your body, in your emotions in relationship. 
Maybe you're battling with condemnation. Maybe you're battling with guilt. The best thing to do in those times, and let me say this, you don't have to just do this on the last Sunday of every month. You can do this at home at your own table. Well, pastor, I don't have bread and wine. Well, milk and cookies could work. It's just symbolism. What we're doing is we're remembering Christ. Every time we receive these elements, we're remembering Christ, folks, and it's an absolutely beautiful thing. So if you're dealing or battling this, this idea of condemnation and guilt, if you're battling with sickness in your body, this is a time that we can prepare a table and we can remember and proclaim what the Lord's death and resurrection mean to us. Amen? So don't look at communion as a merely this churchy ritual thing that we do. Make it a bold declaration of faith of who you are and whose you are. Amen? So Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying this, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this symbolism of the blood of Christ. It represents our complete in total forgiveness. Man, there's no longer separation in our minds. No guilt, no shame. Complete love and grace in this relationship. So we thank you for it and we take this in remembrance of you. Take and drink. You're so good. You're so good. Thank you for being Oh, good God, thank you for loving us so much that you reversed the roles and said, no, I will be the sacrifice and I give to the worshiper. In Jesus' name, everyone said, isn't God good? For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, We pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.